Welcome back and happy 2021. It's good to be back and happy 2021 to everyone listening. As we thought about this podcast and as we planned it out last summer, we wanted to make sure we talked about more than just the Protestant traditions the South is known for. As transplants to the South, one of the things we both noticed was how much diversity there is within Christianity here, and we wanted to celebrate and explore that. In this episode, we wanted to highlight a thread in the tapestry with non-European roots, and so we're going to learn about the Malayalam Christian community in Nashville and the Marthoma Church in today's episode. We use this tradition as just one example of the many traditions in the South brought by transplants of all types. Today we'll be tracing the Marthoma Church tradition, from its connection to one of the earliest forms of Christianity to some of its modern expressions in the American South. The Marthoma tradition has a long and diverse history, and we'll be focusing on the specific thread of the Malayali people from the state of Kerala in southern India. And for the first time in Church Historia history, we will actually be joined in this episode by our friends Renu and Jissi, who are very generous in sharing their stories and traditions with us. Welcome to Church Historia. going to talk about the Marthoma Church and what Christianity in Kerala, India looks like and what that tradition looks like when it comes into the American South, we actually, I think, need to start in a different place in a different time. Hmm. And so we're actually going to start with the Syriac Church. And the Syriac branch of Christianity is one that I'm not sure a lot of folks know about, but it's a very rich tradition and a very long-lasting one. When we think about sort of late antiquity in the ancient world, and you know, we kind of know the Latin world and the Greek world, but right on the edge of the Greek world was this Syriac world. And mm. Syriac is, it's a language, it's a dialect of Aramaic, and it is one of the major languages of the Middle East and Asia. And in fact, from late antiquity, the third largest corpus of literature is Syriac language literature. And that includes theology, philosophy, science, medicine, commerce, trade, all of this. So Syriac and kind of the Syriac tradition sort of refers to this tradition that spoke Syriac starting in Roman Palestine, the Eastern shores of the Mediterranean, and then ultimately spreading both into Africa and kind of northeastern Africa, but then also east through India and ultimately to China. And so this tradition basically spreads along the Silk Road into Asia and carries with it its Christianity. For our purposes, we're going to talk about the tradition that says that St. Thomas Doubting Thomas, brought Christianity to India around 5280. Hmm. And it's hard for scholars to pin down if that's actually sort of historically verifiably true or not. But what we do know is that there's written records of Christians in the area starting around the 3rd century. So whether it was Thomas in 52 
or another group of people a couple hundred years later, the southern state of India has a continual Christian presence from the third century wow. onward. And that, that's a long time. There's a very long time. Mm. But that tradition belongs to this broader Syriac tradition. And one of the sort of reasons we know that is that the modern churches within Kerala and within the Marthoma church use variations of the Syriac liturgy of St. James. Some of them do it in East Syriac. Some of them do it in West Syriac. Some of them do a translation of that liturgy. But the liturgy of St. James is the basis of the liturgy in, in many of these churches. And it's one of the oldest liturgies that mm. the Christian tradition has. This is the liturgy, you know, as, sort of as the tradition goes, this is the St. James, the brother of Jesus. Oh, wow. So this is a very, very ancient liturgy. Mm. And it's still used not only within the Syriac church, but also some churches within the Byzantine and Orthodox tradition. And it's the basis of the liturgy of the Scottish Episcopal Church in England. Oh, wow. And so that liturgy itself has this, this really rich history. But we see that thread through these different churches in Kerala. So the Portuguese get to India in the 1500s, and they encounter this group of Christians, but they're not Catholics. Hmm. And that, for the Portuguese, is kind of a difficult thing because their understanding of their Catholicism is that that is the pure and true path. And so they view these Syriac Christians in Kerala as following a heretical branch of Christianity. Huh. And so they go through a very concerted effort to correct that heresy that they see. And as part of that, they destroy a lot of the ancient Syriac manuscripts that were in Kerala. And so we have far less primary sources from the pre-Portuguese period than we would like. But we know that the Portuguese in the 1500s made this really concerted effort to find those texts and to destroy them. This does bring up a really interesting point where we have come to a place in history and because of technology, because of just in general, it's not that we know everything about everybody's tradition, but we are used to maybe coming across new traditions that we didn't quite understand. It is a really interesting thing to think about is a group of people coming to a new country and encountering that, oh, you're worshiping the same God. You call them the same things, but you're not, you're not Catholic. You're not a part. I think there's some grace we can give to them there to be like, that must have been confusing for everybody all around. Yeah. And and I think when you focus on your thread in the tapestry, you can feel like it should be the only one in the tapestry, that it is the purest, the most true, the most correct thread. And within that position, I think it becomes easy to then say, well, ev everything else should be done away with. Yeah. And to to focus on your thread or your section of that tapestry. So go for it a couple hundred more years. British missionaries start coming in force and start encountering this tradition in their educational institutions. And they set up kind of a reformed Church of England Episcopal version because okay. these British missionaries aren't Catholic. Right. They're Protestant and they're reformed. 
And so they have issues with a lot of Catholic things in general. Sure, absolutely. And so they're on a concerted effort to expunge uh-huh, the, the, the Catholic influence uh-huh. within the Kerala Christian community. And so within this, you, th- you then end up with this multiplicity huh. that we see even today. So when we talk about the Martoma or St. Thomas Church in Kerala, there are different versions of it that, that have each have their own name and distinct identity, but there are groups that are more closely aligned with the Reformed tradition and the Episcopal tradition. There are ones that are more associated with the Catholic Church, with the Orthodox Church, with the Jacobite tradition. Mm. And we see sort of all of these variations and colors, but all of them have their roots in the Syriac Christianity that came to Kerala in late antiquity. Mm -hmm. And they all still kind of bear this similarity in being grounded in that geographic and cultural Hmm. place. And so even when we get to the United States, you know, there's been a a lot of immigration and diaspora from Kerala into other places in the world and including here in the Southeast United States and including in Tennessee. You would talk about those colors within the tapestry, but then there's, there's colors within the thread, right? The thread Mm -hmm. itself can be variegated. It can be a single thread wrapped in another color. And I think the more we dive in and the more layers we look at, the more diversity that we find and the less and less monolithic these things look. But yet those things that tie them together, this use of the liturgy of St. James, these kind of fundamentals of Christian doctrine that they all believe and preach also become even more obvious or more clear as as we get even sort of deeper and deeper and and peel back the layers and hmm. maybe get our microscopes out to start to look at this tapestry. Yeah. With the history of the variegated thread of the Marthoma Church established, we now get to interview Renu and Jissi, two fellow Nashvilleans and friends who have grown up in the Malayali Christian tradition. We'll talk about some of the major hallmarks of their traditions, like monthly prayer meetings and the dialogue between Malayali and Southern cultures. One of the things I thought was really interesting is Leslie and I technically met at a Southern Baptist church. So that got me thinking about all of us have done Baptist-y things, but Renu, I know when you and I have talked, prayer meeting sounds like nothing quite like what I've done or been a part of. And so I thought it would be kind of fun to talk about that and where these things overlap, where they differ. My parents typically attended Baptist churches, but we were kind of funny in that we were one of the only families that were part of the prayer meeting that lived on like the eastern side of the county. So for the most part, we were typically going to like Brentwood, Nolensville, Bellevue for the various prayer meetings anytime that we weren't hosting ourselves. So I'm not sure if the choice of New Hope Baptist was just because I, I, I think my parents just wanted to find a place where they seemed to fit in or like the pastor seemed to kind of reach out to them and have that friendliness and that demeanor with them. So that's how we ended up going to New Hope. And then I was still like part of the church leadership and on the praise team and also going to prayer meetings. So we, there were plenty of opportunities for for fellowship and learning from from others in the community. So real quick, because something I'm hearing you say, you're saying prayer meeting. 
like it's a thing like we would say going to like Sunday morning service or something group or something yeah like youth group so prayer meeting was that a specific thing that was just your community that y'all were doing in addition to going to New Hope or was that the thing you know what I'm saying yeah totally so this was on top of going to New Hope um prayer meeting like the way that MCF started. So MCF stands for Malayali Christian Fellowship. MCF started well before my parents got here, but when my parents moved to Nashville in 1996, they were one of the only communities of other Malayali folks in town that my parents could find. And so some of the movement and gravity in that direction was just to like have other people who were celebrating the same cultural values and the same background of Marthoma is what my parents had growing up. And so, you know, it was like, <laughs> it was the most Indian I ever felt <laughs> every, yeah. every month. Yeah, because it was the time that I experienced the most amount of aunties telling me I should eat more or like <laughs> I should eat less or <laughs> what have you. But, you know, and we got to actually dress in our, you know, our Indian clothes every time we went to prayer meeting and we typically had like a special service for Christmas where all the kids would do their program and things. And that was in addition to whatever Christmas program was going on at our normal church. So a lot of times it was like part faith, but also a lot of culture and just like keeping that vein to quote unquote home. I'm going to use that loosely yeah. here because first generation home is a lot of things. <laughs> yeah. So was prayer meeting, was it bi-weekly or once a month? Yeah. So it started out super casually. Like it was like a once a month thing that like was organized by my mom and her friends and stuff. And they would usually like set a calendar for the year with like who all was hosting which month. And then that person's typically like the, the wife of the home would call all the other aunties and like, you know, do the potluck thing of who's bringing what. <laughs> oh, make sure you bring enough for like at least 30 people. And then we would take a home and cram it full of all of these folks. And then as I got older and as the prayer meeting got bigger, they started moving us into churches. I think we were in the Korean church off of like Franklin Road for a while. Jesse probably knows more than me about like the more recent (laughs) history. So I'm going to leave that to her. But when I was a kid, it was super casual and like aunties would call other aunties about, hey, what are you bringing? And and then everybody would just get together. And it was it was super funny because like you know, my parents' home that we were supposed to prayer meeting in was so small. It was like 1,800 square feet or something, something really tiny. And like, you'd cram like 12 to 15 families into this (laughs) tiny space, you know, and all the cars lining the road of like, what is going on? This is explaining your estimations on food though, when you and I plan parties. (laughs) Yeah, because that's what I'm used to. Is like how I'm feeding the whole world. It, it doesn't doesn't matter if only ten people are showing up. You're you're planning to feed thirty, including fifteen mm. teenagers. Correct. <laughs> Just see what's been the, the the newer side of it. I haven't been back in a while. Like, are, are they still meeting at churches and stuff, or like how is that working? Um, we we did meet at a church until the pandemic started, but since then they've actually had we have a monthly prayer meeting and it happens over Zoom and oh, cool. yeah, it's it's been kind of cool, but they've definitely kept it up every single month. I think the next one's actually this coming weekend. 
And I know they're planning to try some new formats with Bible study and things like that. So I actually grew up in larger cities that had like Matoma churches. And when I was moving here, I didn't really know anyone, but that church and that community is something that I don't know if like, we're kind of ingrained to like seek out. So when we're moving here, that's one of the first things like we're told, oh, like there's no Mayali churches here, but there's a prayer group that meets um, once a month. And that's where a lot of people gather. I will also add that like Martha Mid churches, just having prayer meetings is a part of the culture. So like along with having regular Sunday services, usually once a month, a family will host a prayer meeting. And that's just something additional you have as part of like the church life. Interesting. And it sounds like a family kind of opens their home and then says, hey, everybody come. There's not necessarily like a pastor who like sets something up. Leslie, I'm thinking about the equivalent of like Wednesday nights. Of course, yes. Which was at the church. There was food and then there was Bible study, but that Bible study was led by either the pastor or like someone who was an elder. So it was a very church organized, kind of official church driven thing, like always Wednesdays. And it sounds like prayer meeting was on the weekends? Yeah, it was usually on the weekends. Always Saturdays, but like it, there was like an unofficial leadership committee that was sort of official too, at least when I was growing up, where like my dad became the equivalent of a children's minister for a while. You know, he would help run the children's part of the testimonies for the evening. And then there was like a, a person, like one of the uncles was like the main person that moderated and facilitated the the whole program basically and typically was also somebody to preach in a way and so like yes and no like there's an an informal structure I feel like but that formalized more over time it it seemed is that accurate to your experience Jesse? Yeah I would agree we usually start out with food first and then prayer hymns and hymns usually included English and Malayalam, so there'd be praise and worship songs, you know, included mm. with like Malayalam hymns. And then there'd be scripture reading and then a Bible passage and then a message based on that Bible passage. I think with the churches and with prayer meetings, there's a lot of importance placed on the children and bringing them up in the culture. So there's a very important like section that's dedicated to having the kids come up and they can speak like a verse they memorize, sing a song or like talk mm. about a passage that they kind of like, you know, had some sort of impact on in their life the past month or even just tell a story where they're like, you know, this happened in my life and I was just thinking about how Jesus has taught us, you know, about this and how that came into play. That's great. Rainu, that's where you learned to sing, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. My the very first time I ever sang in front of anyone was at the very first prayer meeting that we went to and I was six years old and my dad made me sing Jesus loves me and apparently everyone was like oh that child can actually sing and it was very weird so from then on like every month my mom was like like training me in a way to like sing a better thing sing a new song be even better like every month it was it was crazy (laughs) parents mean so well they do. They definitely do. But they, they're definitely overachievers. <laughs> mm, mm, mm. 
it sounds like prayer meetings are really important to kind of teach culture and teach cultural values as well. And I'm kind of guessing that this is also a time to help teach Malayalam and teach the language as well. And with hymns being in both English and Malayalam, and it kind of sounds like that's an important thing. I think it is important. I will say with the MCF community in Nashville, they're pretty open to like having people who are not Malayali come in. They're actually open to everyone coming in and hanging out and, you know, joining MCF. So I feel like there's lots of people that are maybe not as fluent in Malayalam. I don't, I feel like we don't place too much of an emphasis on that, but we do include like Malayalam songs and things like that. As far as the churches, I've, I've been to, I grew up in two churches, one in San Francisco and then one in Houston. And both of them were structured in a way where either every other service, so every other Sunday would be Malayalam and then the other ones would be English. Or I think at the church in California, we had two Sundays per month where it was English and then all the other services were Malayalam. Yeah. Yeah. And like for those of us who, you know, Jesse can write Malayalam as well as, as speak it fluently. And my my parents weren't so formal in our education around the language. And so they just kind of spoke it us until we figured it out. And so <laughs> like, I can't write it and I can't read it. And so there's an interesting like translation of lyrics into what my dad colloquially called Munglish. Um, <laughs> where it's like the, like a, a English alphabet but with yeah an English, yeah, yeah 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 it helps those mm. of us who who didn't get the formalized education be able to say the hymns or speak the hymns and in at least some kind of reflective mm. way yeah the Martha Church is actually I, I don't remember when they started doing this but for years now, their liturgy books are printed in a way where you have like three different columns. So the first one's just written in Malayalam, the second one's written in Munglish, and then the third one's the English liturgy that matches up with that. So I'm realizing now, you know, we say the word like, like we say Spanglish to mm-hmm. mean like, you know, we've, we're kind of crossing to, we're mashing all things together, but it sounds like Munglish is like an actual kind of thing. It is actually mashing up Malayalam and English. So it's like Malayalam words written out in English. Hmm. Well, it's interesting to me is that not just that kids would come up and there would be a nice little moment where the children's pastor would say a nice little thing for the kids. The, the children were encouraged to actually participate and and contribute something instead of just merely consuming yeah yeah it seems like a much more active participation than I I feel like what I grew up with I mean like Sunday school happened at the same time as church service so you didn't go to big church until high school but even then that's if you went to like the high school ministry service and then you went to the second service and you went to big church it was very much a kind of separation of concerns and I know lots of denominations like to take the the nickname Frozen Chosen, but we were definitely in our Puritan roots, I think, in the Frozen Chosen tradition. So like if there was a baby who cried during service, everybody would like turn and stare and be like, they're making noise. (laughs) (laughs) What is this? I think it's there's definitely a feeling of like family, right? Like if a baby cries in church, we look and we're like, oh, it's 
that baby that we know. Cool. That's okay. I'm just now having this vision of like all of the aunties like converging on this infant, all pulling things out of their purses, <laughs> being like, "What do you need?" Yeah, people. I don't. I don't think people are usually... actually happens in the middle of service, but that's my <laughs> that's that's the tone I feel like. Yeah, um, people are definitely very caring. There's definitely a feeling of like this entire like community is part of your family. Hmm. You know, Jesse, you said you were in San Francisco and then Houston mm-hmm. and Rainu, you were, for the most part, you spent most of your life in Nashville, I gather. Yeah, we moved here when I was six. So I wonder, because we're talking about Southern Christianities, what was your experience like as both a Southerner and you also had this tradition that's so rich and so longstanding that you were participating in and you said you felt you felt the most Indian when you were at these gatherings. Did you ever feel any tension there or did it, was it just your experience? I mean, I've living here and never being fully anything enough to be fully committed to being any particular Mm. identity. I think at this point in my life, in my thirties, I'm beginning to accept that like, this is just my weird margin of where I live and like, that's fine. As a kid, I think I I wanted to have a space where I could just check the boxes. And like, you know, there's different there's different parts of me that belong in each place. Like whether that was the praise team at the church that I grew up in, or, you know, being a part of the Christmas program at MCF or what have you, like there were different parts of my identity being recognized and like for me, the amalgamation of those things still defines me, but in any given space, I'm never going to fully fit expectations. And that's just true across the board for me, at least. And like, you know, I I think a lot about, have you, can I say a different podcast name? Is that okay? Yes. totally. (laughs) No one can know there's any other podcast that exists. (laughs) The, uh, The Bitter Southerner, I was telling Jesse, like, I feel like they cover an interesting part of Southern culture where there's these margins between like what we view as Southern culture in the monograms and the, mm. I don't know, like the, 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 the stereotype. The for James. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And then right. there's like the other folks who are like immigrants and refugees and kind of on the margins of, you know, what we consider historical Southern culture who are just as kind and, say y'all and believe in in many of the same traditions and values just a little bit changed for their lens and I think I'm one of those people yeah Jesse I don't know that we covered when you moved to to Nashville yeah so I kind of have a weird background I guess I I was born in India and my family is actually not Marcoma my mother is Catholic and my father belongs to the Assyrian Church of the East Oh, cool. So neither of them were Marthoma, and we moved to California when I was seven. So in 1997, I think. (laughs) So when we moved at the time, my parents were very like, you know, we want to make sure our kids continue to speak the language. And part of how they wanted to do that was to try to look for a church that was Malayali. And at the time one of the few churches that had consistent services every Sunday was the Martha church. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how we started going to the Martha church and the Martha church of San Francisco, like 
that's where we ended up growing up. And eventually that's where I had my Holy Communion. So I kind of grew up in a, a lot of different types of Christianity, I guess, that are from Kerala. And so I grew up in a Martha church there and yeah. Oh my goodness. There's so many traditions in that. that what's so wonderful about the Christian faith as a whole is that you have all of these subcultures that kind of come together um, yeah. in any tradition within Christianity. So I'm, I'm curious to know your perception of the Marthoma tradition within Nashville. And when you moved to the South, Yeah, were there any observations that you had? So I think for like MCF, the community is, I feel like they try to be a little bit more non-denominational as far as like, because a prayer meeting is usually just a prayer meeting. There's no liturgy. There's nothing that takes place like that. Mm. But I think recently there has been an actual Martha Church that was started in in Nashville. Or I think they meet a little bit outside the city. And I think that's actually a very recent development. Oh, okay. I knew there was one in Chattanooga that's kind of aligned with the Episcopal Church. Yeah. But I hadn't heard about the one in Nashville. Yeah, I think the I want to say in the last two years maybe that they started up. Yeah, but for me, like I think coming into Nashville once again, like it's that sense of community, like churches where like your parents feel comfortable, you know, letting you roam because it's all people that have the same values. So when we were moving here, I think we like through a friend who knew a friend, like we knew one person that like lived out in Hendersonville or something. Mm-hmm. And that's that's who my my parents would call them. They were like, "Oh, our daughter's moving to Nashville," and they told us about MCF. And was like, you know, that's where you should probably go if you want to meet mm-hmm. other Malayalis, specifically Malayali Christians. You know, and the really good thing with MCF, like once you're a part of the community, like they take care of you. Like I feel like there's mm-hmm. other people who are like, you know, my age and either moved here or like, you know, and they're very accepting and they care for you, and it kind of feels like. Like for me, my family's back in California, so it kind of feels like a family that I don't physically have here. Within the country of India, mm-hmm. how strong is the Marthoma tradition? Is it is it a big community within the country, or is it is it a smaller strand of religion? As far as just like the religion itself, I think like Christianity is a minority mm-hmm. in India. Yep. And even in Kerala, the state we come from, it's it's still a minority. Mm-hmm. And I think it kind of depends on like what part of like Kerala you go to, like to find like what type of Christianity, right? Like one of the areas or the area my parents come from, there's a lot of Catholics. But if you mm-hmm. go down further south, there's a larger Martha community. Hmm. So it kind of just depends on where you are. I think one of the big things with the Martha Church is there's a lot of people that have are you know living outside the United States. So the Martha Church has a lot of churches in you know North America, Europe. Mm. Like the diocese for for our area is actually the diocese in North America and Europe. So there's Martha churches in a lot of other countries outside the United States, and I feel like that helps provide that sense of community and like you know if if you go to some of the larger cities like even now in california now there's other like there's a Malayali catholic church and different things like that houston has multiple martha churches just because there's so many people there yeah. and there's multiple like 
Catholic Moyali churches and Jacobite Moyali churches. And they'll have like programs where like for Christmas, there's an ecumenical Christmas program where all the churches come together for like mm. hymns and things like that. Cool. That's beautiful. I yeah. That's so <laughs> cool. I wish, I wish that was more common. <laughs> yeah. Could you imagine, Steph, to, to I, like, no, to join up with some Catholics and, and I mean, I would know, love it. I would absolutely I love it. I like, really enjoy it. I didn't realize it was a dream in my life, but I think, I think it is. It was just like, it would all be fun and games until we started figuring out how to do communion. And yeah. Then, yeah. Well, <laughs> the, Baptist, the Baptist wouldn't do communion because they did it six months ago. So why bother? And the, the Catholics would want to do it. And then we'd have a whole debate over the Eucharist and it would, yeah, it would, it would well, devolve. you know, and if they if the Catholics haven't been baptized into the Baptist Church, then we have some issues there about taking communion, and then we get into baptism. Oh, yeah, we'll be sprinkling and dunking people simultaneously. I'm not sure how it's going to work out, but I will. I will tell you the fun fact because my in, traditionally in Kerala, the oldest child is baptized in the mother's church. So I was baptized Catholic, you know, with the water really? sprinkled over my forehead. My younger brother, because he's the second child, is baptized in my father's church, which where they dunk the entire baby in a tub of water. <laughs> um, <laughs> so there, there is that too. He, I was baptized Catholic and he was uh, baptized in the Assyrian Church of the East. I was yeah, baptized in a Presbyterian church, like christened in a Presbyterian church. So they did like the water on the head and then was baptized twice in two different Baptist twice. churches. Yeah, because uh-huh. we joined one church and then we hopped to a different church and then we got baptized again as a family. So like, mm. yeah, but, and yet like when we, there's only one uh, male cousin in my generation and all mm. of us girls were all baptized in the same church in New Mexico that's Presbyterian. And when we had the boy, we all went back to India for his christening. Yeah, because it was that special. It was that big of a of a to do. Because it, it, he was a boy? Because mm-hmm. it was like, oh, he's he's the guy. We've got to, you know, we've got to oh my gosh. bless him in India with the, <laughs> yeah, so, with the tradition. So There's something that's so, one of my dearest friends growing up is Indian. And I think she had some insecurity about feeling so different from everybody around her. You know, we'd go to her house and her mom would be putting away outfits because they would have been gone for the weekend to a wedding or something. And we were just like so obsessed with the beauty of this, you know, the the fabric and, you know, Mega, do you wear these? And she's like, yeah. And she didn't really want to talk about it. But I I always loved, you know, we have traditions in my sort of Baptist Christian upbringing, but there's something so bonding about those things like, you know, the first child is baptized in the mother's church and then the, you know, the second child baptized. And I think she was saying her middle name is her father's first name. And there's just these sort of traditional things that I, I admire so much because it tethers us, it tethers us to history and it tethers yeah. us to generations before us. Well, Renu, I remember at your wedding, we, there was like a whole prayer pre-blessing moment that was very different than my American wedding. Yeah. Where, you know, you, you do the church stuff at the church. And I, I guess if you mm. wanted to, maybe the bridal party would kind of do their own sort of prayer thing, but like, 
people came and it was it was a deal and it seemed like there was a I'm trying to remember it seemed like there was a liturgy mm-hmm. I think or like some sort of you know standard text and I think your mom sang right yep yeah it's the glitter diction it's like Jesse I you my mom explained it this way as like a, your favorite teacher's blessing before you leave your parents home to like go join your husband's family is that like your understanding of it because I may be recalling that wrong. Yeah, it's normal for weddings for both the bride and the groom for elders or people who are respected in the family to bless them and pray over them. So usually that's, you know, grandparents, you know, great uncles, aunts, anyone else in, in the family that's respected. And they'll, you know, they will literally pray over you and like, mm. you know, bless you. Yeah. Yeah. In my case, I've I picked my favorite teacher because that's what my mom, my mom said to pick her, your favorite teacher. That's really precious. Again, because it's a, it's a tethering to the idea of mentorship and the idea of bringing someone up in culture and in faith and, and a sort of passing the baton on at a really, at a really pivotal moment, they're kind of there to push you forward into the, the next chapter. It's really yeah. lovely. Yeah. Are there any elements of Southernness that you feel like have kind of that traditional Southernness that have entered like the MCF of Rainu? I'm thinking in particular about, we joke about your dad being a cowboy sometimes <laughs> um, and his like big belt buckle and his cowboy boots. And, you know, that that's your dad specifically, but like just wondering like with the MCF since everybody is here in Nashville and and there is this dual context of being in the South, are there Southern things that have crossed over and have become part of the prayer meeting, whether it's food or maybe it is the old rugged cross. I don't know, getting together to watch football games before or after prayer meeting. Yeah. I, I think that the two, so like I'm married to a very Southern dude. And I, you know, he's, he's from Hickory, North Carolina. And oh, wow. Yeah. That is very Southern sounding. <laughs> it's very Southern. It's, it really is. <laughs> His father was the most classic, classically Southern gentleman that I had ever met. And he taught me so much about like little, like random phrases and just sitting with him and talking with him and like spending time with him was very similar to how I felt about like having Chaya with my family in India and mm-hmm. sitting and gaining their wisdom and knowledge. And so like, I think that there's some inherent values in Malayali culture that line up really well with the South in terms yeah. of family and tradition and food and love. And, you know, it's been kind of what's kept my husband and I together is that like, mm-hmm. we might be from very different parts of the world like in terms of our genealogy but our upbringing and our tradition and our values are actually pretty pretty on point well that's when you started talking about all the food that's one of the things that in in the first episode of this podcast we talk about the tradition of food in the south and how when all this covid stuff is over the amount of potlucks that will happen are just going to be through the roof we're, we're all going to be getting together and eating yeah 
I mean, my favorite but, part of like the of the MCF at the, was all when I was a kid, especially was at the end when we'd all get like desserts and pie some. <laughs> and like yeah. when we were kids, you know, all the aunties would like put the pie some pie some is like an Indian spiced custard. Sometimes there's a brown version. Amazing. It's really good. I really like it. It's horrible <laughs> for you, but it's really good. I know. Um, the best things are the aunties would put it in little cups, little like you know the short wine glass looking kind of plastic cups and the kids would all go around with trays to everybody around and so like you know so much of like my first memories of of social gathering in that way was was that and just waiting for the cake and the pie at the end just think thinking about the, the the things that are kind of similar between southern culture and kind of the Malayalam culture there's lots of jokes about Baptists that like Baptists like can't do anything without a potluck it's true. And you know, everything everything must be accompanied. Well, and one of the biggest culture shocks I had was when I went to this sort of non-denominational artistic church. The first potluck I went to, I was like, where's the fried chicken? It was all like salad and vegan options. And I was like, I'm sorry. Where I are the biscuits, mashed potatoes? potatoes. Somebody made mac and cheese. Yeah. Where's the mac and cheese? Oh, oh, this is cauliflower mac and cheese. It's like the same thing. <laughs> I'm sorry, but no, it's not. It is interesting how our different subcultures do show themselves in very funny ways through our food. And at the same time, it's it's a little bit how we experience the world around us, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, for sure. And that's something Rainu and I have talked a lot about is just is is food and the importance of food to community and these ideas of mm. gathering and family and exchange of life and care. And I think I have been lucky enough to participate in cultures for whom food does those things. And I don't know what it would be like to be in a culture that just like food is utilitarian. That would be sad mm. to me, I think. Yeah. You know, Reno and I joke about like kind of my, my Italian heritage and and her Mm -hmm. Indian heritage and neither of us can appropriately estimate food for a party (laughs) because like the worst thing in the world would be if somebody was hungry. Um, I'm debating whether or not I want to try to go grab this book. I love that you have a book. (laughs) (laughs) I have many books. Oh, look, it's within arm's reach. So (laughs) this this is a book Leslie's familiar. It's called Strangers and Friends at the Welcome Table. And it's my one of my thesis advisors in grad school actually wrote it and it's kind of it, it's an exploration of contemporary southern christianities and he is also a translator i think he's from michigan originally but he has this line he's talking about southern hospitality and and southern like food culture and the fact that you know when you're sick in the south like there'll just be a casserole on your doorstep but he has this line about how like you get the casserole and then also told how to live your life Mm. that those two things come together because kind of that's the, the price of community is that people care, but also they, yeah, exactly. (laughs) They, they, They care in more than just the casserole. They also care about sort of the quality of, of how you're living and, I think maybe there's some similarities there as well. 
Yeah, I would I would definitely agree with that. I feel like, you know, there's usually in, in NCF, like if someone's not feeling well, you know, there's a time when we ask for prayer requests. And if someone's not feeling well or someone's being prayed for, like people will check up on you and see how you're doing. What's the status? Like, you know, is there anything we can do to help? Just thinking about kind of all of these crossovers about and not just food at religious gatherings, but kind of the point of gathering around a table. There's a song called Crowded Table by the high women which is about gathering around a table and a bigger table and what that okay. means for community and it's mm-hmm. fantastic and I, I strongly recommend it mm-hmm. i feel like i would love if we were all sitting around a big round table <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe with some rainy was it pisum pisum yeah pisum. Okay. Mm. yummy just see a brown or white pisum girl um i will take my pisum any way i can get it <laughs> Our most heartfelt thank you to Renu and Jissy for joining us on this episode of Church Historia and for sharing their stories and traditions with us. We hope that you are encouraged to look more closely at a tradition or subject that is new to you and to find all the beautiful colors and threads that it contains. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening to Church Historia. If you like this show, we encourage you to leave a review on whatever app is your favorite to encourage others to add it to their list of shows as well. Church Historia is me, producer and editor, Leslie Eiler-Thompson, and Stephanie Fulbright, who's our in-podcast church historian. The theme music, as always, is played by Andrea Yoey, and the beautiful arrangement of This Is My Father's World and For the Beauty of the Earth was played by Megan Santee. Be well, friends. <laughs>